Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show California law enforcement officer and member of the Fieldcraft survival team, Tyson Shumway. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into law enforcement, strength and conditioning in the tactical athlete space, school safety, road safety, weapons ownership and training, leadership, Wolf Brigade, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tyson Shumway. Enjoy. Well, Tyson, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Derek for connecting us, and secondly, to welcome you to the podcast today. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, Derek's a great guy. I've been working with him quite a bit lately on uh, some training and stuff, and just a great guy to talk to, and also in law enforcement, so that helps. Absolutely. And that was Derek Woodski for people listening. Where, where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? So I'm currently in Sacramento, California. So, but I'm I'm safe from Hurricane Hillary. It's further south from us, so I'm good to go. Or up in Sacramento. So, what have you heard? Because we we're in Florida, so people really aren't paying attention to a hurricane in California. We got about right. twelve headed for us at the moment, um, of which I'm sure most of them will miss. Thank God. But uh, yeah, what, how is that being received in California right now? Uh, it's, there's a lot of jokes about it. Um, there are some concerns. A lot of people down South are, are preparing for it. There's, uh, supposed to be a lot of rain and things like that. So they're all preparing for it. We have a lot of our law enforcement guys are out there, uh, making sure everybody's safe, but I think it's pretty much downgraded to a tropical storm. So I don't think it's going to be as bad as everybody thought it was, but definitely prepared. Yeah. That was weird. When I moved to California from Florida and I was in South Florida before that, um, you know, we just get these monster cat three, four come through and, you know, batter a lot of our, our areas. But most people are pretty resilient and they, you know, board up the houses and have hurricane parties. And then I go to California and there'll be a little bit of rain and the weather people are freaking out. But obviously, again, I understand topography and the the ability yeah. to absorb and, you know, and uh, landslides and stuff. But it was interesting, a seemingly very small amount of rain freaking people out in California. Oh, yeah. Everybody forgets how to drive once the roads get a little bit wet. Yes. Yeah. Some of the most ter terrifying times were on the California highways, for sure. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, then let's start at the very beginning of your story. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So yeah, I was born in, uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I only lived there for a very short time. My, my dad was going to college out there and had was really looking for a college where he could do law school but having a young family and things like that back 
in those days, it was hard to find a school and a night school program that would afford him the ability to go to law school. So he found one out in California um, called McGeorge Law School. So we moved out here when I was about two years old and I've been in California ever since. And my dad went to law school, um, worked, worked all day long and at a bank and then went to law school at night. So didn't really see him a lot. And when I turned about eight years old, he passed the bar exam um, on his first try. And by that time, he, he and my mom had had three kids. So I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And after that, we we stayed here in the Sacramento area and, and grew up ever since. And uh, he's he's been practicing law, still practicing law. My mom keeps trying to get him to retire, but he loves what he does. So he's still practicing law. My mom stayed at home and uh, took care of us my, my whole life growing up. So that was great to have that kind of dynamic where I had a, a mom at home and a dad that was out working and had the ability to still coach on my little league games and, and be home on the weekends and stuff like that. So that was great. Um, and then uh, grew up, went to high school here in the area and played sports, played football in high school and just grew to, to really love uh, physical activity and things like that. My whole life growing up, my dad and my mom served through the, through the church that, that I belong to and things like that. It would, I really grew up in a kind of a service oriented home. So through that, I've always had a desire to serve and a desire to, to help my fellow man and, and things like that. And so that's been um, one of my main focuses in life from their, their example. My dad still does a lot of service, helps people move. And that's probably like his second job. His second passion is to, to serve people. So through their example and things, I really, grew to have a desire to do that. Um, with that being said, after after high school, I went and served a, a two-year mission for my church. And I went down to Argentina where I learned Spanish and served the people in Argentina for for a couple of years and and came home and 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 then continued continued on. So um my my brother and sister are still in the area. My brother's down in Southern California and my sister lives up here with us. My my brother served a couple of years in the, the Marines and my sister is now a, a school teacher. So again, just our whole family is is service oriented and in the public service. And that's kind of kind of what we do. And one of the reasons, main reasons why I think I got into law enforcement. Um, you want me to continue on with all the way through through when I, I started law enforcement or I'll, I'll jump in for a second. A few, a few things. Firstly, which okay, area yeah. did your dad um, yeah. practice in law? Oh, so, yeah, he does. He does business in real estate law um, and he's been doing that for for years and years. He's always kind of just been on his own. He joined a couple law firms early on, but he he loves just working for himself and getting out there and, and working with the, the people, his clients. And so he's he's been a, a one-man show for, for a long time. Has you ever had the discussion with him? I have with, with some of the, the people in the law profession I've had on here about the frivolous lawsuit element that we see. So the, you know, the, the fender benders that barely disrupted the dust where now all of a sudden they got neck pain and their lawyer shows up. Um, have you had that discussion with him with that particular area of law that first responders seem to see quite a bit? I have. He's, uh, and that he shies away from that pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strongly. He, my mom always talks about, Hey, if you would just take just one accident case, we'd probably be set for life. But his morals, I think, kind of keep him away from that. Um, that's definitely not the type of law that, that he likes to practice. I do know some attorneys that are in that field that are friends of mine that have contacted me about different cases that I've been involved in, the car accidents that they are now going to be in charge of. And uh, it is it is interesting to see the other side 
of law. I'm definitely glad that I'm on the side that I'm on. The, those the attorneys over there deal with it, deal with a lot more, and it's kind of a slippery slope when they get into the into the nitty gritty of what they have to do to to make their case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's obviously justifiable elements where someone is at fault and they've right. changed someone's life completely, and that's where that needs to be. But it's the slip and yeah. falls where the video, you know, they show you the video of them pouring out a detergent and lying next to it, which I've been on, <laughs> and the lawyer they're back to have a parking lot and get hit at like point five a mile an hour, and now all of a sudden he's supposedly paralyzed from the from the neck down. Yeah. Those are the ones that drive me crazy because you know that's just. Firstly, you know, unethical, but secondly, it's driving everyone else's race up as well. Absolutely, yeah. So you said about the church, obviously Salt Lake City is known for, you know, the Church of Mormon. Is that what you grew up in? It is, yeah. I grew up uh, LDS, um, so I was born and raised, um, and that's where I served, served my mission for for the LDS Church, and still currently am a, am a strong member. I've been married to my wife for 22 years, and we got married in the temple, and um, it's, it's a huge part of my life. And I think it's a, a lot of the reason why I'm able to do what I do and still, um, have, have good mental health and be able to, to work on those things. Cause I think I have a little bit different perspective than some people that might not have the, that, that strength in their life. Um, but I've, I, that's my, that's my strength. You know, that's my anchor that I can always focus on Christ and focus on, on the church and the things that I've been taught, um, to help me through any any issues or any troubles that I might have. What is it about that particular doctrine that creates um, such community and such friendliness? Because I'd say almost everyone I know who who you know is member of the the Mormon faith, there seems to be that similar quality about it. Whereas, and again, not picking on any particular religion, but there are a lot of people out there, for example, with the fish on the back of their car that drive like complete fucking assholes. So I did notice a lot more consistency with that kindness, compassion in the Mormons that that I personally have met, you know, and certainly served alongside as firefighters. I think a lot of it is um we're a service-based church. We're a service-based organization, so it goes back to that. Um, nobody in the church makes any money. Uh, nobody in the church is is paid for what they do, and we're a family. Um, every we look at everybody as a as a son and daughter of God, and even the people that I deal with on a daily basis. Even if I have to take a person to jail or or arrest somebody for DUI or anything, they, I still see them in that light as a son or daughter of God first and foremost. And I think that plays into a lot of just our our mentality and the way that we that we look at the world with that that kind of perspective, knowing that we're going to make mistakes in this world and people are going to make mistakes, but everybody can overcome them and everybody can can do what they need to to be able to return to our Heavenly Father's presence. And I think that's having that perspective um, and treating people as such is has just really helped with um with my my outlook on law enforcement and my outlook on how i treat my fellow man and and same as the church we're just a big family well i'm jumping way ahead but before we get to your path into law enforcement while we're at this tangent because it is something i talk about a lot one of the things that i saw as a firefighter paramedic working on the east coast and the west coast working for you know urban very very poor areas and theme parks um pretty you know uh, diverse, interesting career that I had. 
there was a resounding element that the war on drugs, and I'm using air quotes, um, was a resounding failure through my eyes. I mean, the the, you know, the prostitution, the, the the gang violence, the overdoses, the homelessness, you can all reverse engineer to broken homes and, and mental health challenges. With this altruistic upbringing that you had, this community element, did that shape your lens on some of the, the again, air quotes, criminals that, that you interacted with that was maybe different than some of the people you served alongside? Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially with as much time as I have on, I have 15 years on, and once you get to that point, a lot of people are pretty jaded with how people are. Um I think that my upbringing and my my focus, and again, pretty sheltered up until I I started working. And as a law enforcement, I worked in Compton and Watson, LA, and, and um, we can get into that and stuff as well. But I've 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 been around. I've seen I've seen my my fair share. And I think that with with all that being said, I still try to treat people just that the, they're inherently good you know i know that there's there's people out there that are definitely evil i'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat that at all but i think i tried to treat people as seeing them through a different lens and trying to look at them through through a lens of of how how christ would look at them um but I, th- definitely broken homes and things like that i just i feel for them you know i feel and i feel lucky f- at the same time for the upbringing that i had because i think that there is definitely something to nature versus nurture you know that where you where you grew up and and how you grew up is definitely affects you but i've also seen some people that have come through some from some of the the worst neighborhoods and the most broken homes and do amazing things with their life so I think that um, we all have the opportunity. We all have the ability to succeed. Um, it's definitely harder for some people than others, but I, through, through that, I've I just try to I try to not get jaded with the world. I try to just keep that that optimistic outlook and stuff. And it's hard. A lot of times, it's hard. I come home from work sometimes and have to uh, come out in here and, into my garage, into my gym, and really hit it hard so I can so I can get my mind right again. But um, it's definitely something that I try to focus on with everybody that I meet. I try to treat everybody the same way and try to treat them with the, the love and compassion that, that I can, you know, definitely if there's a situation where I have to ramp it up, I'm going to, I have no problem doing that, but I treat people with respect. And I think that's helped me a lot in my career. A good example, I think of, of a common denominator that I've seen that steers young men and women away from that negative path is mentors. And it might be a, history teacher it might be a PE coach it might be a martial arts instructor it might be anyone it might be a police officer that was just kind and compassionate on the scene but we got a very very poor and dangerous area in Orlando called Paramore and there's an amazing group in there um, called the Give Team um, one one of the the young boys that's gone through the whole program was almost murdered I think it was yesterday he, he sustained two shots he survived but one of the girls that he was in the, sh- the car with that they shot she she passed away simultaneously one of the other guys and this is wasn't that he was doing anything bad he was just wrong place wrong time in this kind of neighborhood one of the younger boys has just come through is now in um uh university of north carolina and his gpa is i I think it's basically four and just phenomenal but again they found these these mentors the give team which is in the new image um New Injures Youth Center, if I got that right. Um, you know, this this seems to be a resounding common denominator. I'd be interested to get your take on it. 
yes, we all grow up in these these homes. There's there's abuse a lot that's hidden from us. So, well, what's wrong with you? You had a great family. Well, yeah, but your creepy uncle was molesting you in this mansion that you grew up in. Right. But it seems to be the mentorship. What are you seeing through your eyes? You know, you worked in Compton and Watts and some of these, you know, very, very well-known struggling areas. What was that thing that took some of these kids the right way? Yeah, it definitely is that, the, the mentorship. And that's one of the things that I think our church does so well is we have that program. We have a young men's and young women's program where we, not just the parents, because you know when you get to a certain age, 14, 15, 16, you don't listen to your parents anymore. You need to really have somebody that's going to come in there and 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 tell that. And so I've I've had the opportunity to work in those those youth programs um, where I've been able to pull a group of of 100, 100 boys uh, to a week long camp in the, in the summer and take them out into the wilderness and really show them how to be men and how to, how to do things that are hard and how to overcome trials. We've done hikes to half dome and, and things like that in Yosemite, which, which now kids can pull from that and realize, Hey, I was able to accomplish this, you know, the rest of these things in life, like getting to having to write this essay for school or having to to get good grades isn't isn't so hard. I've, I've been able to accomplish these these tough things, and I think that we need more of that. I think that um, in a in a world where we're seeing the decay of the family and and things that are happening in the world, we need more and more mentors out there, people that are willing to step up and and help because it really does. It takes it just takes one person. It just takes one person to really make a difference in somebody's life to where they're going to flip their life on a coin and be able to start moving down the right path. And once they do that, once they have someone to latch on to, um, then that's, that, that's where they start and they can springboard from there. I think one of the most nauseating things I hear is, you know, the problem with kids today is, is you know, they, they need their parents. You know, where are these dads? Why, you know, why are these homes broken? And you, you know, you work in Hialeah or Anaheim, California, downtown, or, you know, like I said, parts of Orlando or, you know, Compton and Watts, and you see these homes and you're like, well, there is no fix in that. You know, th- this is broken and dad's dead or in prison or mom is or both the parents are and they're living with the grandparents. And so, you know, it's a very patronizing, um, disarming comment to be like, well, that's all we need to do is just get families together again. And it's this is the problem is there's so often that they cannot do that. That child does not have that. And there's no potential for that being fixed in that household. But we as another member of the community can step up and be that mentor and be that father or mother figure instead. 100%. If I... And I see it, you know, because I pull, I I stop people, you know, in, in law enforcement. And again, once we get a little more into my career, I don't I don't work so closely with the public as much as as other guys do. But if I'm going to be the only interaction that somebody ever has with law enforcement, it needs to be positive. You know, it needs to be positive. If I if I'm if I'm going to have an interaction with with somebody who has never had an interaction with law enforcement before. And I, and I leave them with a bad taste in their mouth. Now for the rest of their life or for until they have another encounter with law enforcement, they're going to hate law enforcement. But if I can, but if I can show them that we're people and that we care about them and that we want them to just be safe and, and live meaningful lives, then that's then how much further does that go in their life? And I talk about, I get in trouble at work right now, I'm, I'm back on patrol and I'm supposed to be writing tickets, right? I don't. 
I just, I don't write tickets. I'll give somebody a correctable violation or whatever for something like registration or something like that. But I don't write people tickets. I'll stop somebody if they're speeding. And in my philosophy, in my outlook, if I stop you for speeding and I walk up to your car and I talk to you and I say, hey, slow down. I, number one, I've already slowed you down. And number two, you're going to think twice before you speed again because you know we're out there. You know we're stopping you. But if I write you a ticket, that leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. And then three months later, when you get the $600 bill, bill in the mail, you have another bad taste in your mouth. So rather than that, I prefer to just stop them, talk to them. And young kids and stuff like that, too. I've had young kids call their parents. Hey, call your dad. Tell, you why, tell them why you got stopped. How much harder is that for a kid to do than to go home and have to have to pay a, a $400 or $500 ticket. Um, so that's, that's the way I look at it. I think, and those people that say that, you know, Oh, the, the broken homes and things like that. What are, what are they doing? What are you doing to make the world a better place? You know, are you actually out there helping, helping people? Or are you just posting on, on Instagram? Are you a keyboard warrior saying that what's wrong with the world? What are you actually doing to help make the world a better place? Well, staying on that topic, um, firstly, it's interesting because I had a story similar to what you're talking about where I live here. We had a young kid that was, no other way to describe it, was terrorizing the neighborhood. This is like 25 mile an hour residential roads and like a 30 mile an hour around the lake. And this kid would be playing around here at like 60 miles an hour, almost wiped out in front of a bus stop full of kids one day. Um almost ran me over my dog and then flipped me off when we went by and my poor old dog I tried to chase after to see where he was going and uh, she couldn't keep up she was uh, very arthritic by that point so that was probably funny watching this dude in flip-flops yeah. trying to run down <laughs> the sports car anyway went the normal route that our local police force seemed to be completely uninterested in that particular moment so I was like all right so I ended up tracking down the kid's father go into a dealership where he works, sitting down uber professionally and said, look, this is who I am. This is what I've seen in my career. This is how your son's driving. He's going to be dead and or he's going to kill someone else. Kudos to that dad. He immediately made a phone call, took the kid's keys away. And it was about six months later that we saw the kid again. And every time I see him, whether he knows I'm watching or not, he's driving well. So again, correcting an action rather than the lifeguard blowing the whistle and shouting at someone. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that you posted recently on your Instagram or a little while ago now that your your kids had a, a car accident. They did. My son is about to take his driving test on Thursday. Before I even load the question, because I will if I go on anymore, what is your perception on road safety and if there has been any sort of journey in trying to, to reduce the 40,000 people that we lose on the roads every year? So again, it's, I think... As a father and in my profession, um, it's just making kids aware, making kids aware of, of the power that they hold and the responsibility that they hold when they're, when they get behind the wheel. Um, and you know, it's my kid. I don't know if it's just my kids or if it's kids in general. I think they, if you sit down and talk to them, they understand it. I think they, I think they understand it and put more weight on it than even some of the adults that I talk to. But if you sit down and have a, a face-to-face conversation with them, and um, I, I taught at our academy for a number of years, and kids these days, <laughs> there I sound super old, right? But <laughs> kids, they 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 want a reason why. They want to ask questions, and they want to know why. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
um, you need to be able to sit down and tell them. Well, so I, I sit down with my kids and tell them, Hey, no cell phones in the car at all. No, no food in the car. You know, if you have friends in the car that, that night, my daughter was driving my son to a dance and they got in a car accident where someone ran a red light and they, they crashed into them. Um, but my daughter did everything that she, everything right. She called me immediately and stuff like that. But, but, you know, just knowing that they're responsible and, and they, they understand the power that they wield when they're driving a car that they have, they're basically holding their life and the life of whoever's in the car's lives in their hands because cars are, do a lot of damage. Um, and I think with, with the general public, when I stop them, I do say that. I, if, if I stop somebody that's speeding and they have kids in the car, I'm going to say, hey, you're responsible for every single person that's in this car. And when you're driving that fast, you got to realize that you're going to go from 80 miles an hour to zero in an instant. And the, that's going to that's gonna do a lot of damage to you and to the people that are in this car. So when you're driving this car that fast, you need to think not only of yourself, but of the other people that are in this car. And I think that awareness really opens some people's eyes to, oh, uh, like this isn't I'm not just driving for me I'm not just responsible for my life but everybody else that's in this car and I think that having those conversations with people really uh really opens their eyes to the the power that they wield when they get behind the wheel the driving tests in the UK I've talked about this a few times um it's just so much harder than it is here and I can contrast because I had to take the Florida one when I came here and I've talked about this and really wrote it in my book it, it literally felt like a warm-up to get ready to do a driving test and they turn around and said congratulations you passed i'm like are you <laughs> are you kidding me and it wasn't again looking down your nose it's just that you are held to a very high standard in the uk our roads don't have medians normally you know there's country roads and hills and all kinds of stuff which there are in, in the u.s but and most people took about two or three times to pass it so there's a real understanding of why and there's a real understanding as well and i think this is maybe partly culturally as well of sharing the road like if someone's about to get to a pedestrian crossing, they're already stopping and then they'll show them, wave them across and the pedestrian will wave. You know what I mean? And if you're merging onto the motorway, they'll move over to make sure you can get on, not <laughs> try and race you so they can win right. the race. So right. what what I've observed is just it seems like maybe the age, you know, go up a year or so, but also just the educational element. You know, I, I think that we need to educate like, you know, why you use a blinker. You're letting the person yeah. know behind you what you're about to do, why you keep X amount of distance away from the car. I know you touch on it, but really, even with some, you know, some scare tactics, show them some horrible videos. You know, I think it just seems to be like, well, this is how you go forward, back, left, right. All right, there's the keys, off you go. And to me, as a firefighter that's cut so many people out of cars, usually the ones that weren't at fault, you know, 20 years later, like, when are we going to start talking about this? And you know what, I... When I was a kid, we did so. There was actually drivers training in school. It was a it was a whole semester, you know, a six month semester of drivers training in school. Um, and then at the end of the, the class, they'd show us a video called Red, Red Asphalt. Have you ever seen that? I haven't, but the British PSAs are absolutely awful. So I'm sure I've seen yeah. some comparable ones. Yeah. So there's a there's a video that we would have to watch at the end called Red Asphalt. And if you can imagine from the title of that of that movie. It was basically that it was it was scare tactics of every major, major car accidents of people with uh, severed limbs and stuff, even a decapitation and things and like, like that. And I, they don't show it anymore, I don't believe, and um, or do the drivers training. My daughter, I have three three drivers now. My three oldest kids are all driving. And it was it's basically 
take the class online, uh, pass your test, go out with a driving instructor a couple times and then go take your test. And it's, it's really, it's not enough, you know, it's not enough for the amount of, of responsibility that it is to drive. It's, it's not, it, we need, we need to do more. So I know, I think it's either five or 6 million traffic accidents a year. There's 40,000 deaths. There's probably hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have changed from the injuries that they survived. Um, if you could be king for a day with, with your kind of unique lens that you have, what should we do to change it or improve it, should I say? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think just just the knowledge, uh, like I said before, making sure people know the the power that they wield when they get behind the wheel and showing them, showing them what can happen, um, showing them what can happen, not necessarily scare tactics, but showing them what can happen when, when a car gets in a car accident. There's some there the, recently I saw, I think it was on Instagram or something. Now some, some AI footage of, of what happens when different cars get in the car accidents. And I don't think people really realize how, how bad it can be. You know, I, I definitely would, would invite people to come on on ride-alongs with with the the police or with with the the troopers in the area and that see those things day in and day out, and probably get some some stories from people whose lives have been affected. You know, um, who better to tell the story of of why it's important to drive safely than someone whose life has actually been affected by it? But I think just just those those small things to to start out would really start to open people's eyes. People are still going to drive out of control. And there's definitely not enough officers on the road right now, especially in my state, that are going to even be a visual a visual deterrent to to slow people down. So I think that I think getting getting more officers out there, getting more knowledge to the public about how important it is to drive safe and and what um, what it is to drive safe, how to drive and how to drive defensively. That was everything that I learned growing up was how to drive defensively, defensively, realizing that there's other people on the road that are going to do things and you need to know how to avoid it. Um, so I think just all those things, things would help. I don't think there's any magic bullet. I think it's just a number of things that can, can help bring more awareness to, to that. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to before you became a cop so we can walk through then you're a football player in high school what are you dreaming of becoming at that age? Is it law enforcement or is there some other route? Uh, you know, I went, I went, I went kind of round and round in circles um, a lot when I, especially when I was in Argentina, um, just seeing stuff down there. I wanted, I always knew that in my life I wanted to teach. I always knew that I wanted to serve and teach and, and do things like that. So I was looking at a be best way to, to raise a family. Cause again, being LDS, you know, you get home from your mission, you, you find a spouse, you have kids and you support a family. That's, that's the, that's the, the pattern. So I knew that I needed to have a, a good job where I could support a family and, and do those things. And, um, unfortunately teaching high school and things like that isn't necessarily the, the best way to support a family is something that I would have loved to do, but, um, wasn't going to be the best route. Um, I was always interested in firearms and interested in training and, and physical fitness and things like that. So just seeing a lot of, um, the, the direction of the military and law enforcement went, um, in some of the special tactics and, and things like that, I really was, was drawn to that. I got home from my mission in 2000 
and met my wife literally the, the week after I got home from a mission. Um, we got married about a year later in June of 2001. So um, right before September 11th happened, we were married. So a couple months later, we were actually living out in Utah at the time. September 11th happened. I was at work working for just a, a computer company, just making ends meet, going to school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, went home from that happening and told my wife that I was going to go sign up for, for the Marines the very next day. Um, when we got married, that was never even talked about or even a, a thought. So she said, okay, well, if you go there, then I'm probably won't be here. That's not the life that I signed up for. So she was definitely against it as much as she loves our country and things like that. She just didn't want, that wasn't the life that she saw for her. So the next seven years through working in retail and in management and things like that were kind of a, a back and forth fight about what I could do. I applied for a couple of different police departments and um, she was just never really, really down with it. And again, at this time now we started having kids and um, definitely had the, the promises that I made to my wife as far as she was the one that I was going to be with for, for eternity. So it definitely had to be a partnership and a decision that we both made together. Um, luckily I had a friend that worked for the department that I currently work for, who told her that, um, and working for the department that I work for now that I wouldn't be going into people's homes. Um, I'd be working mostly on the highways and, and doing just traffic stops and crashes and stuff. Nothing, nothing super dangerous. Little did my wife know at the time that our department has probably one of the highest, uh, casualty rates of any department in California. Um, and so she was like, okay, if that's what you really want to do, then, then do it. So, um, signed up, went to the Academy. It was a live-in Academy. So I lived there for, for six years. Uh, one of the or six, sorry, six months, one of the only live-in Academies really in, in, in the country anymore. Um, lived there for six months, got to come home on the weekends. Um, my wife with three small children, um, at home and she basically took care of them. And while, while I, while I pursued my dream, um, graduated from, from the Academy six months later and then, um, moved down to LA, ser served there for a couple of years. And then after a couple of years, I got to move up to, to Sacramento and I got on our SWAT team where I was kicking indoors and going into people's houses. So again, like anything, if you spoon feed it to them, you can pretty much talk anyone into anything. So, and now she's, I've been on the job 15 years and she, she loves it. She wishes that I had started earlier, um, but it's, it's, we've grown together. Um, again, like I said, we've been married 22 years. So having going through the motions that I had to, to get to where I am today was totally worth it. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way because it was definitely a journey that we took together. And I think that's why we're still together, you know, in, in law enforcement, it's somewhat unheard of to have been married for 22 years to the same, same person. But since we've been on that journey together, we've, we've grown together and been able to, to accomplish that. Beautiful. When, when I came out of fire Academy, I think it was literally that day or the day after was when ladder 49 came out. 
And by the time we finish the film, you know, and he passes away in the end, my wife is bawling, and I was like, "Oh no, 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 be fine. I'm on an engine. That, that was a, that was a ladder." And then three yeah. three years later in California, I'm driving the back of a tiller truck and on roofs with a chainsaw in my hand. Right. So yeah. we never told her that, that was- bit, but yeah, that's uh, mm-hmm. that's it. You tell them, you know, best case scenario, like ah, you know, I'm only yeah. on the roads, and we all know that the roads are some of the most dangerous places that we all operate. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Compton and Watts, speaking of um, safe places for law enforcement. Talk to me about, you know, your experience in that area at that time. Yeah, so I broke in down there um, when I first started with with my department. I started down in South L.A. Um, with a, a, a good, good group of guys that I graduated the academy with. And we all started down there. I grew up in, in Sacramento, small suburb in Sacramento, um, and really hadn't been been out of Sacramento to, to anywhere for my whole life. So going down to LA, I moved my wife and kids like graduated and moved my, my pregnant wife. She was pregnant at the time with our fourth child. And so moved my pregnant wife and three kids down to LA to this little cracker box, crack Jack box house in, um, uh, in Redondo beach. Um, and, uh, man, the first two years down there, I loved it. I, it was it was exactly what I thought the job was going to be. Um, from, from day one, we were out driving, driving the streets, driving the freeways and driving the streets, trying to learn the area and just getting into everything that you can imagine from, from drugs to pursuits to, um, DUIs and crashes, multiple car pileups on the freeway. And, and it was exciting, you know, um, it was, it was everything that, that I, that I'd imagined. I loved it. I, and working in Compton and Watts and then Long Beach and all of those areas, um, really gave me another, um, another perspective of what's out there in the world and kind of helped open my eyes to, to what a lot of people go through day in and day out in this country and have to overcome. And I think it humbled me a lot because I, you know, I had grown up pretty, pretty easy life, you know, pretty easy life never did drugs, never drank alcohol, anything, you know, good Mormon boy. And then to be thrown into that atmosphere and and see all that around me was kind of a culture shock, but it really helped shape the type of officer that I wanted to be and how I wanted to, to grow and and help my fellow officers later on. Um, It's funny, my, my wife, same thing. She grew up in small suburb in, in Sacramento and the first, first weekend, that she was there, I was at work and she was driving to try to get some things for the house. So she went to this bed, bath and beyond that was actually in Inglewood. Um, but she pulls up there and she, she stops the minivan with all the kids and, and starts to get out of the car and calls me on the phone and says, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable getting out of the car to go into this, this bed, bath and beyond. It was in a, in a kind of a rough neighborhood in Inglewood. And, uh, she tells me where she's at and I was like, yeah, get in the car, go back home. And from then on, I, I actually back, back then we still had to get, I went to AAA and got maps. We had paper maps. So I put maps up in, in our house of, and kind of out drew lines of where she was allowed to shop and where she wasn't allowed to shop just because they're down there. You can be two miles away from Compton and, and be living in, in a little bit nicer neighborhood and, and not even know what's, what's around you. But yeah, that was, that was kind of interesting happened to to realize where were safe places to go and where were places where she, I probably didn't want my wife and, and three kids to, to shop. So, 
Yeah, I remember when I was in Anaheim, we had you know Disneyland there, but you go a few blocks east and you're in downtown Gangland territory, and the same in Orlando. You could be at the the football stadium or you know the arenas in downtown, and you take you know you walk down into Paramore at the wrong time with you know around the wrong people, you're not going to have a very good night either. So it's it's amazing no matter where you are, the bad areas are usually next to some pretty nice areas. Oh yeah, absolutely. So. I grew up on a farm in England and I become a firefighter paramedic in America and, you know, work in the urban setting mainly. And it was a huge eye opener for me. But one thing that I fought to retain, unless someone was just, you know, so obnoxious that the the, the English manners were not warranted anymore and and drugs and restraints were warranted instead, um, you know, was just fighting for that compassion. No matter how desperate someone means, no matter, you know, if you've run on them 15 times before, try and hold on to that thing that took you into the service position in the first place. With that upbringing that you had, you know, talk to me about, about that because I know a lot of my colleagues, you know, my brethren, as you said, were burnt out. You know, they were just, and I understand the whys. I do the, the 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 shifts and everything. But you know, what was your experience of seeing such desperation and a lot more roughness needed, probably in the responders in those areas, but still trying to maintain that compassion? Yeah, I think that's. I go. I I always go back to my anchor. You know, my anchors, my my family, and the church, and being able to kind of recharge being able to get that recharge, go home and spend time with my wife and my kids and then go to church on Sundays when I could was my recharge to kind of refocus me and recenter me to why I went into the job in the first place. And I think that's important. Whether you're religious or not, I think having that anchor and having that center that you can focus on when you're not at work helps you overcome the challenges as when you are at work, because I, there, I'm not going to say that there weren't days that I went to work and I, and I didn't want to just burn the world down. You know, there were days that I wanted to go light the world on fire and, and find, find the guy that was, that, that was drunk or that had just gotten into a deuce crash and, and foot bailed. And now I have to go chase him down and I want to tackle him and take care of business stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, realizing what my job was and my job was to get that person under control, get them in handcuffs so that I could take them and, and have the, have the, the, the courts deal with the situation, you know, or seeing people that were, that were less fortunate or uh, uh, homeless and things like that on the, on the end of the, the, the ramp and realizing that they're just trying to sell some oranges or just trying to make ends meet and handing them a bottle of water instead of yelling at them and running on them off the ramp. And it just, it just having that perspective and being able to realize that um, what's important, right? What's, what's really important in the grand scheme of things um, helped to, to keep me grounded. And there's been, there's been highs and lows in my career. There's been times that, I've needed to just separate myself and go for a drive and not be around my family. Um, but those times I always, I always come back to that anchor. I'll come back to my family and come back to the church and come back to the, the teachings that I've been taught throughout my life and the example that my parents were to me. Um, having that, that being able to ground me has just helped me to, to really overcome any of the, any of the negativity that I've, that I've had, that I've faced. 
Well, you talked about the training being six months, which is you know pretty considerable compared to most, you know, I'm sure law enforcement and fire agencies. At the front door of your career specifically, what were the the fitness standards and philosophies like in in that department? And then what about the kind of defensive tactics, hands-on weapons side as well? Yeah, so our academy, again, six months live in. PT, PT was pretty strenuous. Um, I went in when I was 28. I was a little bit out of shape um, when I first went in and PT was strenuous. It's three days a week, 20 minutes of knockdown, drag out, calisthenics so floor exercises push-ups sit-ups air squats and basically body weight exercises for 20 to 25 minutes and then they would take you on anywhere from a three to five mile run like we would start out at three and then towards the end of the academy was a five mile run three times a week um so pretty good uh fitness standards there the problem was in that that that's all body weight and it's all cardio and so you're not building people you're you're breaking them down to the, the raw material I went from, I think I went into the Academy at about 210 and I think I left about 170. So 170 pounds at six foot. I'm sitting at about 220 right now and I'm not the leanest I've ever been, but I'm, I'm a strong 220. Right. So you can think me at, at 170, I was pretty, pretty small. That's me. Um, You're looking at him <laughs> uh, yeah, like, like yeah. a co-hanger. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but, and, and, you know, and there, it, it works for some people and some people are, are we're great at it and, and work out that way. I've always been a sprinter and football player and stuff like that. So I've always tried to try to be more like a linebacker when I, in law enforcement, I want to be able to chase somebody down fast, but once I get a hold of them, I want to be able to handle myself once I get a hold of them. Um, but that was, that was the physical training. So pretty strenuous physical training. The, the problem is after the Academy, there's nothing. Um, we have an annual fitness challenge every year. It's an annual fitness challenge that you can participate in. I think in my 15-year career, I think I've participated in it or actually been in an office that's had one maybe three times in 15 years. So there's very there's next to none. Um, it's on your own, um, and there's no real incentives to continue to train. As far as defensive tactics, in the academy, it was – you have one day where you wrestle with no wrestle training. You have one day when you box uh, the other cadets with no boxing training. Um, and then everything else is a resting control technique. So control holds, handcuffing, that type of stuff. Now, it has changed since since I went through. They, they've implemented a little bit more. But the actual, like, control, any type of jujitsu or um, officer safety training with and defensive tactics – that was mostly done after the academy, and those were classes that you had to sign up for to go through, and that was after the academy. In the academy, it was all rest and control. So control hold, click clack with the handcuffs, um, prone handcuffing techniques, all those handcuffing techniques, a little bit of takedowns and stuff, but again, just all control hold type stuff. So not, not great. You'd think with six months of time, um, that you'd have a lot more time to do that. But um, firearms training was pretty good. We went through a pretty extensive firearms training. I don't remember how many hours it was, but we were taught on the pistol, rifle, and shotgun. Um, and then when I went through, I was one of the first classes to actually go through and get the taser. So we all got tased um, and things like that. So um, the academy was very academic. I'll, I'll say that. It was very academic. They wanted us to learn codes and um, report writing and a lot of that stuff. Um, was more important than a lot of the defensive tactic stuff. Now, how did that contrast with your on-ramp journey to the SWAT side? 
Yeah. So once I, once I got, once I left LA and I went to Sacramento, um, I trained again. So in the two years that I was down in LA, again, I, I was working a ton, got kind of out of shape, went back to Sacramento and had the desire to get on our SWAT team. So I trained, uh, quite a bit. I did probably a good, I, I got down to about 180 pounds. And when I went to Sacramento, I was probably like 220 and un- unhealthy 220. And then I just, I jumped into CrossFit. I found CrossFit up there in about 2010 and really jumped into that and started training on my own to do that and started doing firearms training on my own. I had a couple of good buddies that were on the SWAT team that were really working with me to show me what I needed to do to get my training up to par to where it needed to be. Um, I tried out for the SWAT team once and uh, didn't pass, but it was I knew it was something that I wanted to do, so I continued to train and tried out again and and made it um, the second time. Our our SWAT tryouts consist of having to do at least two pull ups with a twenty five pound weighted vest, um, a little uh, eight eighty obstacle course, some uh, our, ba- our basic pistol uh, qualifications, and then. Uh, uh, an obstacle course that our SWAT team puts on. That's, that's a kind of a secret thing that, that we do. That's, that's pretty intense. When I first tried out for our SWAT team, I was able to do two pull-ups or I was able to do one. And I had to do two. I was able to do one and a half. So I got one and then could not quite get that second pull-up with a 25 pound weight vest. So I was out. Um, six months later, I went back and did nine. So was able to, to really train and, and work towards that and really focus on what I needed to do to be stronger and was able to get nine and pass the rest of the tryout and then our SWAT week with with no issues. Um, that's honestly, that's what really ignited my my desire to train and work and, and push because if we're expecting, that's the minimum we're expecting of, of someone who wants to be on SWAT and then there's so many other things that you have to do. Why do we not expect that of just our, race, our regular basic everyday patrol officer? Um, yeah, and so that's that really became my focus after that was really trying to push that towards um if you're going to be on patrol like why why do you not put the same effort into being on patrol every day when when you're out there with the public dealing with the public day in and day out and me as a SWAT guy I might do it a couple times a month if that you know go and I have all the tools and everything at my disposal to go in and, and kick in a door and I'm going with a whole team you're out there by yourself, you know, nine times out of 10, you're out there by yourself dealing with the public and you're definitely not as physically capable as you should be. Well, it's the same in the fire service. I mean, our special operations teams in general aren't viewed as needing to be a higher physical ability. But I mean, if you think about what we're required to do, you know, a lot of the, the rescue squads, you know, we're doing extrication, so you've got all the tools there. If you're talking about high angle, that usually involves climbing to where you're going to be descending from. So, you know, but again, usually the first of us that are on scene is a regular firefighter, which is why I had a lot of my special operations certifications, but I never joined a team specifically because we're all going to go anyway. But I agree with you 100%. The fact that any first responder agency has an optional fitness test is a disgrace to our professions for a start. Because you ask any of the special operations community, you ask the ocean lifeguards, like, are you tested every year? Uh, what do you mean? Yeah, of course we're tested every year. What if we can't do the job? Well, you know, and then you have police and fire. A lot of the areas, they don't. You know, oh, well, you know, it's, if it's punitive, then they're going to take jobs. Well, no, not if you get in shape. 
they're not going to slice the axe the day that they put it on. You're going to have a period. But how would you feel if your kids died because the firefighter was too out of shape and couldn't get to them? Would you be like, oh, it's okay. They're they're fine. You know, they were working hard. They tried. No, you'd be like, that's unacceptable. So so I agree with you 100%. You've unlined what I've said. The SWAT and police, the, the fire, you know, we should all have extremely high standards. And a lot of the special operations community have said, look, we hold you to the same level of us. Because when we're overseas, you're the ones protecting our family. Yep, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's a hard it's hard to talk other guys into that, right? Um, unfortunately, there's and I work with a lot of guys that that do train that that love to train and want to work, um, but there's there's some of those that just feel like it's not it's not necessary and. You know, uh, unfortunately, it's it some it at some day it's going to come down to when it is necessary, and then they're going to have to realize. And I hope that they they realize it and are able to overcome it and make a change, rather than have the the alternative happen. So, what has been your journey when it comes to the fitness world? I got into CrossFit uh, about oh six oh seven, served me really well. But then I got into some of the strongman stuff with the uh, strong fit. Um, did the strong first certification, so got exposed to more kettlebells, and now recently I've been with um, Wolf Brigade programming, Greg's programming, and again. So it's as you age, as you change positions, you know your your training starts to change, and there's just more um, innovation. You know, people start to start to find different ways. So, kind of, what was your path? You started in CrossFit. Where did that take you then? Yeah, so CrossFit, I, I loved CrossFit, but um, CrossFit made me weak. And I found through CrossFit, um, CrossFit football uh, with John Wellborn. And so as soon as I found CrossFit football, I latched onto that as 100% and started actually lifting heavy uh, and getting strong and still being capable, still being able to have the, the capacity and the, the gas tank that I needed. Uh, I wasn't running long distance and stuff and, and anything anymore, but I still had the capacity that I needed to be able to do that. With that being said, doing lifting heavy and and doing some of the the metabolic conditioning and all that stuff, the high intensity interval training, I still was able to go back to the academy and with the graduating classes, they run a five mile run from the academy to the capital every every time there's a graduating class. I was able to go do that with those guys two or three times, having never having not run more than two miles at a time, probably in the last. However many years I was, and I could, I could run that five miles with them just fine. So there's different ways to train, but yeah, from there, um, CrossFit football left CrossFit and started his own, um, company called power athlete. And I've really just for the past almost decade since 2010, 2010, 2011, really been latched on with those guys, um, at power athlete with John Wellborn. And his group, uh, he had a guy working for him named Tex McQuilkin, Luke Summers, and Callie Hinsman. Callie Hinsman is actually a law enforcement officer up in uh, Seattle now. But his main focus was to build uh, field athletes. And from my perspective of wanting officers to be built like linebackers or rugby players, it just fit, fit right in line with what I thought officers should be. Strong, fast, and capable, right? Able to, to handle their business. 
and handle it for, for the time that they needed to, but also be strong enough to, to deal with the situation. Um, so through that training, a lot of his stuff was, was geared toward field athletes. But again, he also had a lot of stuff that was geared toward just putting on size, putting on strength, uh, sprint work, uh, agility work and, and things like that, you know, is being able to, to, basically move move in any direction that you needed to and be strong and capable in doing it so i worked with him for a long time and i'm still a, a block one coach with those guys and and love everything that they teach and everything that they do um more recently i've been working a lot with with derek woodski uh with with a lot of his training he's in law enforcement up in montana and so through him and then through also with, with Wolf Brigade, um, I actually got turned on to Wolf Brigade through Power Athlete. They had him, Greg, on his on their, their podcast one time. So I was really interested in that. I wanted to, I was getting older. I'm in my mid-40s and things now. So I wasn't lifting nearly as heavy as I used to, but I wanted to be capable. I wanted to be able to get down on the ground and get up. I do jujitsu and things like that. So I wanted to be able to, do takedowns, get down on the ground, get back up, and you have usable strength to where I could have capacity and be able to one day, eventually, my daughter actually just got married in April, so I might have grandkids running around here pretty soon. Who knows? But being able to get down on the ground and wrestle with them and still get back up and still go to work the next day as opposed to pulling something every time I try to, to play on the ground and stuff. So through Wolf Brigade, I kind of went – started moving that direction with the mace work and the kettlebell work and things like that. I really wanted to be able to do a lot of that stuff, uh, ground work and, and Derek Woodski has been, been huge in that, that realm as well. Actually about a year, I almost, almost ex uh, exactly a year ago, I was doing some, some silly workout in my garage and I blew out my, my bicep tendon. So I ruptured my bicep tendon on my left arm from the forearm and, and uh, shrunk it up and had surgery on that. And through the training that Derek Woodski has been giving me and Wolf Brigade has been giving me, I, I was able to get back to work in less than two months from the surgery of that, in, that injury. And, um, and again, I, I'm, I'm just as strong and capable. My left arm still not quite as strong as it used to be, but I'm still just as capable as I, as I've ever been one year later, having focused on all that, that other training. So I'm 49. Um, I'm about to go and do an event I do every year. I don't do CrossFit competitions, but there's a thing called the Hero Challenge, which is a Orange County firefighters put together. It's a memorial for the 343 firefighters we lost in 9/11. But there's usually a well, there is always a fundraising element as well. So it's either um, you know a burn charity or one of the kind of fire related charities. Um, and it's always my training has always served me well, but I've only been doing Wolf Brigade the last couple of months so again it's the the testing ground i know there's going to be like an overhead press element to it which we've been doing you know the kettlebell warm-ups are all those so we'll see but um but a, the big thing that i changed my mindset was at 49 rather than trying to figure out oh can i increase my lifts a little bit or you know can i get more bar muscle ups i'm like all right let me take this year to fix all the shit that's broken because I've been, you know, firefighter, stuntman, martial artist. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that don't move the way they're supposed to anymore, and it's been eye-opening to see as my mobility gets better, as the uh, the muscle balance improves, and you move through planes of motion you don't normally do with maces, etc., kettlebells. Um, 
my hypothesis is I don't need to work on cardio and strength. It's in there. I just can't access it because of planes of movement. Have you had any kind of that discovery once once you've kind of shifted away to Wolf Brigade and Derek's work as well? Yeah, and I so my my cardio is is I throw on a weight vest and go for a walk. You know, that's 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 what I do for cardio now. Um, I have an assault bike and I'll jump on that thing every once in a while. But yeah. I, even the stuff that Derek programs for me, whether it's a barbell lift or dumbbells, I use kettlebells. Um, I use kettlebells and I use, um, I'll do one side and the, then the other, um, just because I like the way that they make my body feel. I like the way that they make my body fit into sit certain movement patterns. Um, so I've been using kettlebells for all that stuff and I'll implement the mace and I just feel like I can get up out of bed in the morning and 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 stretch a little bit and actually feel like I'm ready to go for the day. Whereas before, lifting super heavy and things like that, I loved it. Like I, I loved being able to deadlift over 600 pounds. But man, I would feel it for like the rest of the week. Um, just uh, my systemically and everything. So now being able to utilize that stuff. Um, but yeah, doing all, all that stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm burnt out by the end of the, the time and I don't need to go out and do a ton of cardio or anything anymore. I feel like it's, it's all kind of just implements into it, whether it's the isometric holds or, or the kettlebell swings with, with actual heavy kettlebells, right? I'm doing kettlebell swings with a 106 pound kettlebell. I'm not doing them with, with a 30 pound kettlebell or any of this week stuff. So, uh, farmers carries, weighted rucks all that stuff is really a lot more uh feasible and a lot more usable and a lot less uh taxing on my joints um when it comes down to it and i think you're gonna you're gonna be just fine if you look up on instagram look up a guy named johnny durrett he's been doing wolf brigade stuff for a little over a year and if you see the prs that he's making on barbell lifts having just done their stuff your overhead press is going to be just fine well, you mentioned about um, jujitsu. What I've already found, just simply from the uh, Turkish get-ups that you do as part of the warm-up in every workout, and then usually once every six, you know, workouts, there's going to be an actual Turkish element to the workout too. Just simply be able to push someone off me, like it's amazing because you, you know, we're usually on our back. If you're, you know, in that defensive position, we're very weak from our back. But there's no better exercise than the Turkish getup to be to start being strong. So I've noticed that even with that, and you know the cardio is obviously muscular endurance, which I think for the fire service we need that raw strength a little less than law enforcement does and than the military does. But we need to be able to do that work for you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty minutes, and you know climb you know, 60 stories before we even go to work with 100 pounds of gear. I mean, worst case scenario, our, our, you know, workouts are going to be insane. So, but yeah, just going down to that, that ability, like you said, to move in different planes of motion and move from positions that you're not normally used to, like an officer gets bum rushed now they're on their back. The, that kind of strength and that functional ability that combines with the combat element was a real eye opener for me. Yeah, that Turkish getup is isn't that the most humbling movement ever? Like I went from deadlift, like trap bar deadlifting over six hundred pounds, to doing Turkish getups with like a twenty pound kettlebell in my hand or body weight, even when I first started out, and still looking horrible at it. But yeah, they're they're great. So before we go to the kind of the the tactics training side, um, King for the day again for your whole department, what would standards look like from the fitness and strength and conditioning point of view? So 
we work, I, I'm currently working nine hour shifts and I'll say this about anything. This goes into the tactics and stuff too. I think, I think officers need an hour a day of, of training and if, whether we can boil that down to one eight hour day a week or, um, or an hour a day of some type of training, we can implement any type of physical training and tactical training into that. Um, so I would train and, and it's, you know, and guys are going to do whatever they want, but, and I've always said this when I, when I taught at the Academy, so I taught at the Academy for a number of years and I taught, I went back and taught physical training at the Academy while I was there. I tried to implement a lot more of the circuit training type training with kettlebells and dumbbells. And we bought assault bikes and rowers and tried to really actually build muscle on guys instead of just tearing them down. I think that getting guys into a type of training protocol where they're using pro using kettlebells, using dumbbells, doing some type of mobility training, um, and putting them through a program that they can enjoy some, you know, and giving them the opportunity to do anything they want. If guys love to box, let them do boxing training. If guys love to, to do jujitsu, do jujitsu training, but it's on, it's on the department's time, you know, cause guys won't do it. And, I spend, my wife goes crazy because I spend thousands of dollars and, and hours and hours of time, my own time a year training because I think it's that important. But um, guys won't, most guys won't do it unless it's on the department's time. So if, again, if I was in charge of my department, I'd give them an hour a day to train and I'd give them as many different opportunities or options to train as they wanted to, CrossFit, bodybuilding, lifting, whatever it is. I don't care what it is. As long as they're training an hour a day um, in some type of physical physical method. Um, and I think that that would go, that would do more good for morale and um, competence and ability for our officers than anything that we can do. Any pizza party or any raise or anything's ever going to do to to help build teamwork and, and morale in our departments. I think when it comes down to it, um, working together toward a common goal of, of doing something physical is huge. And uh, like that annual fitness challenge thing that I talked about that we do when I was at PT, I tried to write a, a at our PT staff, I tried to write a new um, kind of a new program for that where because our annual fitness challenge is you go out and you you run a mile and a half you do as many push-ups as you can in in a, in a minute you do as many sit-ups as you can in a minute and then you get a score that's basically it well guys that's guys don't want to do that it's not fun so when i wrote this pro this this new program i wrote like an eight page paper about how it doesn't matter what they do. If guys decide that they want to get together with their friends and go do a tough mutter, or if they want to do a CrossFit competition, or if they want to hike up half dome, that's their annual fitness challenge for the year, but it's sponsored by the department and it's paid for. They, they get the day off. They get the day off from the department as a, as a, as a wellness day. And they're able to go do that on the department's time. And it didn't go anywhere, but again, King for a day, I'd implement all that. So you touched on something that I struggle to understand when you have a profession where lives are literally in your hands and you know in unlike our profession where usually the only thing that's going to try and kill us apart from the you know if we're unlucky enough to be in a in a gun related incident it's going to be a vehicle or it's going to be an actual fire um whereas obviously with you every traffic stop potentially could be you know a shot in the face so both of our professions you know the 
the philosophy that we may not go home the next day, that someone else, our partner or a member of public may not go home because of our inability to do our job, haunted me the entire 14 years of my career. And it drove me to train. And as you said, lots of my own money, lots of my vacation days spent taking airway classes and extrication class, you name it, anything I could do to be a better firefighter. Why is it that that is such a hard sell to some of our men and women in uniform? That's a hard question to answer because my mind doesn't work that way. You know, um, it's, it's a lifestyle. To me, this job is a lifestyle and this, this is my life. Even when I retire, this will continue to be my lifestyle. Just being prepared for me is a lifestyle. I was a, I was a boy scout and stuff. So I was kind of raised that way to always be prepared. But, um, I don't think, I think people just get complacent, you know, complacent. They're making the money that they want to make. They're going home. There's so many other things pulling at them. They're, they're, their wives, their kids, um, other things that they're, that they're worried about. Whereas for me, it's, yeah, I, I don't, you know, those are the only things that I can think of that, that pull them away. And I've had this conversation with people as to why they don't. And it always always comes down to time. I'm like, man, like I, I have, I have a a calling at church that I, that I do. And, And again, this, I'm not trying to like toot my own horn or anything, but this is just reality. I have four kids. I have a, a wife and she stays at home, luckily. So she does a lot of the home stuff, but I, I have a, a calling at church that, that requires my time. Sometimes requires more time than others. Um, I go to work and I work quite a bit of overtime to help me against me because my wife does stay home. Um, but I don't think a day's gone by where I haven't been able to come out into my garage for at least 20 or 30 minutes and actually do something, some type of physical activity. Now, there were times where if I if I wasn't able to come out in my garage and get a full hour workout in, then I was I was one of those guys who was just like, eh, it's not doesn't it's not worth it. But you got to change that mentality, you know. Even if you have fifteen minutes, if you have fifteen minutes before you go to work, and all you can do is as many pushups as you can do in fifteen minutes. That's something, right? Um, or or stretch or do something, do some type of physical. Throw on a weight vest and go for a fifteen minute walk. Um, but I think what it comes down to for most people is time. And if it's not important to the department, then why is it important to me? I think that's what it really comes down to. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And I think this is the problem. There's, there's fingers pointing at each other. Like, well, they don't give us any time. Well, they, you know, they should be doing it on their own. And the answer is yes, both of those things. Like when, you know, and I've had a lot of people in law enforcement say exactly what you're saying. You come off shift and then you get an hour to do you know whatever training is and then you go home but it's all covered because i want the person pulling over my son when he does get his test to be competent physically to be competent you know in some sort of martial art so that when he's ruffling around and is you know nervously in his glove box to find his you know papers that you don't freak out and shoot him in the back because that was your go-to at that point so you know i think it's it's we're only going to fix it when the employer and the employee both get on the same page and realize that that is the absolute nucleus of why we do our job, to make ourselves, our partners, and the people we serve as safe as possible. And the only way we do that is to have the bar of training physically and in operationally set to as high as we possibly can. Yeah, 100%. And I, I agree with you. Um to a certain extent, the, the departments need to step up, but ultimately it, it's, it's my life. 
and it's my job and it's, it's my family that I need to go home to. And it's on me, you know, um, our departments can, can do what they can, but you're going to even, even departments that do give their guys an hour a day to train. Some guys aren't doing it, you know? So it's ultimately like, what, what's important to you? How important is your life and your livelihood and your well being to you? And we see that even, even outside of law enforcement, and then you see it with people just walking down the street. It's like, dude, take some ownership, take some responsibility for who you are and be better, you know? Well, another common denominator from, you know, people like yourself, a lot of people in law enforcement that have come on that are, you know, diligent about their strength and conditioning, they're diligent about their whatever martial art they've chosen, whether it's Krav Maga or Jiu-Jitsu or Sambo, you name it. Um, they more often than not report that of all of their colleagues, they're ones usually that have to go hands-on the least because they project that. I know what I'm doing. I wouldn't run if I were you, you know, element. And I, I get it. Some of the people I had on, if I got pulled over, I'd be like, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Talk to me about the defensive tactics, you know, the, the unarmed portion um, through your eyes, being a jujitsu practitioner. Yeah, hundred percent. I, um, I don't get in a lot of fights. Um, like I said before, I think, I think a lot of that comes back to the respect that I give to people. Um, but I also, carry myself that way and i talk to anybody that i teach defensive defensive tactics to and talk to them and um at the academy or wherever i've taught um a lot of it's demeanor you know how do you come off are are your is your uniform look good um are you in in good shape to where you like look like you can handle yourself uh are you making eye contact with people or are you, when you come into contact with people are you kind of looking off into the distance or looking around like like you're scared and i tell this because i teach some defensive tactics and some self-defense classes to to kids at church and stuff too just just little basic things like how to throw a punch or how to block a punch and things like that nothing like crazy but i tell them the same thing first and foremost thing that you need to do is put down your cell phone put your cell phone in your pocket have your head on a swivel, look at people in the eye and, and, you know, walk, walk with confidence. And that goes so far into, um, how people, how people look at you. And there's been studies about it, you know, FBI studies and things that they talk to inmates and talk about, Hey, why did you attack this officer? Well, his, his uniform was disheveled. He wasn't looking me in the eyes. He kept kind of like turning around, turning his back to me and things like that. And, it all comes down to that demeanor. Are you walking with confidence? Are you confident? Are you handling your business? Are you talking with a with an authoritative voice? You can still talk with an authoritative voice and still be respectful and be nice to people. Um, but it comes down to all of that. And again, like I don't, I don't get, I don't get in a lot of fights. I don't. I I'm able to kind of calm people down and talk to them about, hey, let's be cool. Be cool with me. I'll be cool with you. We're, I'm just going to figure all figure the situation out and we'll get you on your way or you're going to come with me. We'll figure it out. So being able to talk to people and give them that respect, I think, plays a huge part into it. Now, what about both um, efficacy and optics, striking arts versus grappling arts when it comes to actually arresting, restraining someone from a law, law enforcement perspective? It, you, need, you need them both. Um, I've always, I've always said control holds because I taught, I taught control holds for a long time to cadets and control holds work for 
the guy who's either a two o deuce, so super super drunk, who's not going to be able to really resist, or for like your eighty year old grandma. Um, that's who control holds are for. Mostly mostly compliant people that might need a little bit of extra. Um, but for someone who definitely wants to resist, you need speed, surprise, violence of action. Um, if I'm able to take somebody to the ground immediately and gain control of them, then that that crash to the ground and then me immediately being able to get in a position advantage to where I can control them, I can control an arm is going to to play huge. These these ring around the rosy type control hold things that we see where there's four officers trying to take somebody down. Um, they, they embarrass me because it's, it, you're, it doesn't do anything, but make us look bad. If, and if I'm able to take somebody down, it might look super violent, but if I'm able to take somebody down, put them in a control hold, slap cuffs on them and be done in five to 10 seconds, as opposed to trying to wrestle with somebody for 30 seconds to a minute. Now I'm exhausted. They're exhausted. And it looks horrible because now the fight's gone on a lot longer as opposed to if I'm able to take somebody down in five to 10 seconds and get handcuffs on them, there's a pop, there's a chance that won't even be, be able to be caught on somebody's cell phone camera. Right. But these these things that take forever and ever and ever that to think. So I think striking is important. Grappling is important. It's it's all important. Someone who just trains in just jujitsu is going to be able to handle certain situations. But if you don't know how to strike, if you don't know how to throw throw a blow or block a, a strike, then you're you're only halfway there. Um, because I think strikes definitely are effective. You need to know how to throw effective strikes. Um, a lot of times to just soften it up so that you can get into a jujitsu hold. Um, and you know, I've done, I've done the Gracie combatives courses level one and two. And a lot of what they talk about is true. You know, being able to hold somebody down and, and have control. You don't have, you aren't in a rush certain times. If you have them down and you have them in control and you're able to like, let them kind of like exhaust themselves for 20 seconds while you're just breathing normally and nice and relaxed. Anybody that's seen the Gracie's knows exactly how relaxed they are in those situations then then you're able to get the handcuffs on a lot easier in those situations because they're exhausted they're going to give up a lot easier so but i think that it's 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 neither one nor the other you have to be able to train both now what about the the weapons side now again there's a huge spectrum of officers out there from you know ex-military special operations phenomenal you know masters of weaponry through to one year six shot qualification on a you know a range target what have you seen through your eyes and again where do we need to go if anywhere so firearms training is is huge i i, I train i teach for a company outside of my department um called Fieldcraft survival and i teach mostly civilians but i do have law enforcement officers that come up come out to those classes and and train with me as well um the sad thing about that is i will usually contact some of my law enforcement friends and comp them the class so i'll say hey, come out for free and um some do but nowhere near as many as you would think would take me up on, on that. But um, firearms training to me is, is huge. I love firearms training. I think it's one of the things that we don't focus on nearly enough when it comes down to it. That's the thing that is, is going to save our life, but it's also the thing that's going to um, possibly hurt us in our, in our, in our lives the, the most as well. Right. As far as uh, civilly um, being able to know when to shoot and, and, 
and what your target is and what's beyond and being able to get those shots on target as opposed to missing your target and hitting something that you you didn't intend. So for me, firearms training is, is huge. Being able to, to draw your weapon and, and get a, an effective shot on target and as quickly as possible is something that I think needs to be trained. Um, like I said, during at least one hour a day, during that, that hour a day, one, one day a week for an hour a day, I think officers should be training with their gun, whether it's dry firing or not. I train um, here in my garage um, during my, my, after I work out or before I work out, I throw my gun belt on and I always go through a couple reps of drawing my gun out and getting some dry fire work in. But um, it's not, it's not focused on enough. And the way that certain academies are teaching firearms training is so, so behind the eight ball. Um, they focus on staying stationary. Everybody, and it, it's a lot of it's because of what the academy has and the, how many cadets are going through. But I've seen academies where cadets are standing online, pretty much already having their gun out of their holster to a certain extent, and then being told to fire on a target that a stationary target, which is not realistic. Um, if anything, if that's all you have, you need to be setting up some type of barricade where officers can be shooting from behind cover, going from the entire draw stroke, drawing their gun out and firing on a target that presents itself to them in the shortest time possible. And that's doable in an academy, but um, the days of, where you see the pictures of all the cadets standing online and they're hunched over and they have their gun out and they're, and they're just firing on a stationary target. Like that's, that's not doing anybody any favors. All that's good for is getting, getting holes punched in paper. Well, you mentioned Fieldcraft. I had Mike Glover on quite a while ago now. Um, but another one of his Greenberry friends, Tim Kennedy has sheepdog response. And mm -hmm. right after the Parkland shooting, they happened to be coming here. I mean, ironically, just up the road. Um, and uh, so there was an anonymous donor that sponsored a huge load of spots. So a lot of uh, firefighters got to come. We did the civilian side, but there was a law enforcement side, which, you know, again, I mean, numerous comped classes. And Tim told me that day two, well, day one, I don't think they filled all the law enforcement side. And day two, I forget the percentage, but there was a large percentage that no showed on the second day. And, you know, it's as, as I'm sure a lot of the classes you put on, you know, it's real world weapon classes and the jujitsu, they'll throw in knives and guns on the police side. There's the little um, taser knife, too, and the stun knife. Um, to, I mean, it's realism of training and it sucks, but it's supposed right. to suck because then hopefully it won't be so bad in the real world. Again, yeah. through your lens, you carry that weapon on your side every single day. Why is there resistance to that level of training? Is it a fear of being exposed? I think a lot of it is. It's, a lot of it's a fear of being exposed that you're not good enough um, and that you don't know how to utilize it, that you're you're not proficient with it. Um, and I think a lot I think a lot of it is just you know people oh, I'll never have to use it. You know, people think that that it's uh, that, that's I'll never have to I'll, I'll never have to use that. I might have to draw it out to scare somebody, but I'm not going to have to use it and things like that. I think um, people don't put enough weight on the the events that we see, you know, and there's there's been police shootings recently where there was there was a bad guy with a gun and officers drew out to shoot at him. And every single officer that shot at him missed. And this happens all all across the country. Every single officer that shot at the guy missed. You know, and and then the guy gets away or whatever happens. And how embarrassing is that? That 
the, the tool that you utilize to stop the most heinous threats, the threats that if somebody's going into your kid's school to actually kill people and you aren't proficient in the one tool that can stop them, like, what are you doing? Why, why, why are you even carrying it? And I tell this to civilians too. I have the civilians that show up to, to learn how to shoot with, with field craft survival. And man, I, I thank them. I'm so thankful that people are actually putting the time into show up and learn how to utilize that tool and exercise their second amendment, right. To learn how to, to survive or how, how to save other lives in a situation because I, I have civilians that come out to my classes that I would 100% go into a room or go into a school with alongside before I, before some of the officers that I work with. It's, it's embarrassing, but I don't know. Again, it's, it's like the physical fitness portion. You know, we, we do the bare minimum just so that we can wear the badge and get the paycheck and have the, have the, the health benefits. But when it comes down to it, like, why are you actually doing this job? And it's, it doesn't take much. Like I teach, I teach those classes. I can get somebody pretty proficient with a pistol to where I feel comfortable walking through a door with them in about five to six hours of a class. You know, I get them pretty, pretty darn proficient to where they could pretty much outdraw a lot of people out there and, and get rounds on target. Um, it's not that difficult. You know, it's, people just have to swallow their pride and realize that I was there too. I wasn't, I wasn't the best shot when I first started. I'm still not the best shot. I can handle myself, but I'm not, I'm not as proficient as some of these competitive shooters out there, but I can, I can do what I need to do. So with the, the handgun element, I grew up on a farm, so I'd fired shotguns, but never had a pistol. Mm -hmm. Didn't have one for several years in the U S basically experienced a code red in my son's school. Um, no one was armed. Luckily, it was a legitimate threat, but the guy never showed up. Um, so I got to see how vulnerable all these people were in a school. And then coupled with my, my career, I'm like, okay, you know, as it stands at the moment, no one can really say, oh, you can't justify a firearm in a country where everyone, especially the bad guys, have firearms. So I added it to my toolbox alongside my tourniquets and masks and everything else that I have if I ever come across someone's you know life being in danger when i'm not in uniform but cut that came with a huge amount of responsibility like okay well i've got this thing like a car that now i can kill someone with i need to learn how to not kill myself first and then how as you said to make sure that god forbid i see someone walking towards you know a building with a weapon with intention to harm that i have the, the ability hopefully when tested to take out that person and not shoot three people downrange you know and miss them completely as you said recently we just in florida got rid of the whole concealed permit training requirement and now basically you can purchase one and just shove it in your pants i'm you know like i said i'm very middle of the road when it comes to ownership but i think that needs to be coupled with training and a solid fucking background check too what is your perspective of that a apolitically removing yeah. training when it comes to firearm ownership I, I 100% agree. I think, I think everybody should have the right to own a firearm. I think if you want to carry that firearm, you need to train with it. Um, there's, there's reports and studies and things that show how many people have been killed with their own guns. You know, if you think you're going to carry a gun into a situation like that and you've never trained with it, it, it's 
probably going to get taken away from you and you're going to get killed with it just because you haven't trained to the level that you need to to be able to utilize it or to the mentality that you need to, to utilize it. Pointing a gun at somebody is not easy. You know, if you've never done it before or never had to pull that trigger on somebody, pointing a gun at somebody, it's not, it's not just, it's not just second nature. Um, and it shouldn't be right. You're pointing something at somebody that can, that can end their lives. But I think if you, if you do carry a gun, you have to train with it. And what, what that training looks like, uh, I'll leave up to each person to determine what they think that level of training needs, uh, needs to be for them. But for me personally, I would not feel comfortable training a, carrying a firearm, carrying a gun, unless I trained with it at least weekly. Unless I knew the condition of my firearm, checked it every day, put it in its holster, put it in, on my belt, and then at least weekly was drawing that gun out and practicing with it, whether it's dry fire or going to the range and firing it. I, I know people who go, go to the gun store, buy a gun, throw it in the holster, put it on their belt, and have never shot it. How do you even know that thing works, right? How do you even know that that thing's going to go bang when you pull the trigger? So I think um, that's where I would go um, weekly. Week Weekly training, uh, even if it's just dry fire, dry on the thing out, practicing with it, loading, unloading type of thing. But um, definitely need to have some type of of training. And I'd get with, with a professional. There's tons of companies out there, like you said, that, Fieldcraft Survival, Sheepdog Response. Um, there's local companies everywhere that do train civilians on, on on concealed carry. But get with somebody that you know, and again, reach out to myself or to anybody that you know in law enforcement if you have questions about who who to get get good training from, and get training on that firearm if you're going to carry it. Absolutely. Well, you touched on school safety. You've had, you know, several children have gone through the school system. As I mentioned, I had this real, you know, near miss that was, you know, just such an eye opener. And I would have been the responder on the outside. Now, as a parent, I get to see it on the inside. And one of the only children that has his dad next to him, which actually we had an actual shooting not long after that in Forest High School in, in Ocala. Thank God. I don't think that kid had the same intentions of a lot of these shooters because he fired one and then laid his gun down. But that could have been absolutely horrific too. Um, so talk to me about, again, your perspective. It's a multi-layered conversation when it comes to the whole thing. Everything from, you know, as we said, the, the family home to bullying to mental health to video games. There's so many layers to that conversation. But with the school safety today, you know, we can't affect, you know, years of damage to some of these children. What is your perspective of what needs to be in place in our children's schools? I think every school needs to have a police officer, if not a group of police officers. Um, we talked about it at the very beginning. What what better way to get the community and these kids to actually appreciate police officers or, and have good relationships with pe- police officers than to have one or two or a group of them in their schools every day? Uh being counselors, playing basketball with them at recess, uh, being coaches on their football teams, um, really getting getting us involved in in their schools. I I was able to my kids' school. They went to a charter school here, and I was part of what they called the Patriot Dad Patrol, where I was walking around and hung out during recess and wore a vest and stuff. And um, again, nobody nobody was supposed to know or anything that we were law enforcement or that we were armed or whatever. We were just a couple good group of dads that were, were law enforcement that had walked around, but to actually have uniform law enforcement 
And most of us work, I work in the community where my kids go to school. Most of us, a lot of us do nowadays, just with, with commute and gas prices and stuff, more and more officers are living where they work. Um, so why not tap them to be the community resource officers at their kids' school or to just show up for a couple hours a day and to, to hang out with the kids, to talk to the kids and go into the classes and talk to the kids about what they do and, and, and what our job is. And you, that's twofold. You get, you get these, these dads that are, or, or moms, whoever it is, that are great people in the community who are now role models for these kids at school. And at the same time, if something does happen, I don't care if it's even just a, a, a fisticuffs fight, you have them there to handle it. You know, from a fisticuffs fight all the way to uh, a school shooting. Now you have them on scene to handle it immediately. And I know in the past in certain schools and stuff that the, the officers haven't gotten involved and have gone the other way. That's why you need to vet them. That's why you need to have people who actually have buy-in, you know, buy into the school. They have kids that go there or they have their, their alumnus there at all. I would love to go back to my high school and be uh, a resource officer and hang out with the kids and be like, Oh yeah, I went here and I played football on that same field and, and be a role model and, or a, a coach for those kids that, that don't have that in their lives. And I think you'd be able to stop a lot of the problems before they start if you did that. Yeah, no, I agree completely. If you hear Dave Grossman talking about a lot of the shootings, the moment someone had actually interacted with the shooter aggressively, the number of those that happened, they were stopped there and then. But, you know, because they're relying on being the predator and everyone being the victim. And then you shift that that mentality. And I think, yeah, if you go to the front door of a school and there is an, an SRO that is actually physically competent, then I think that's a great idea. I sadly, in my son's middle school, had an interaction where it was an absolutely fucking awful law enforcement officer that made some horrible decisions that my child still still is dealing with to this day. So as a parent, I've got to see, you know, if that's the the the, the easy job where you send all the shitty cops or the retirees or whatever, that mentality needs to change because that could go from day-to-day interact, uh, um, interactions and mentorship as an officer to, oh shit, you know, there's someone coming in, we got to go straight into tactical mode. Yep, 100%. So you talked about earlier about the, the shortage. Again, fire, even, even fire, ironically, is, is woefully understaffed and I would argue probably not v- viewed the same way as, for example, after 9-11. Um, you know, the media is kind of, bunching all first responders together now i think but obviously law enforcement is the one that's really in the barrel talk to me about that optic especially in california and then what impact is that understaffing having on not only the men and women in uniform but the people that they serve yeah i think a lot of it is um first and foremost the morale of, of the departments um when you are working nonstop, and when you're getting mandatory held over to cover a shift because they don't have enough officers it weighs it, you know the amount of hours that that we already put in and then and then the the work that we have to do with the substandard equipment that we have and the just how far behind in tactics and stuff we are i think that all plays into the desire for people to come on the job desire for people to stay on the job people are always looking for other departments to go to um and that all of that is portrayed to the the public because now if you have officers who are on their 15th hour on a day 
and they're making contact with someone who is just in a little fender bender or or someone who might be might be drunk and it's their first DUI or their, whatever it is, whatever contact you're making. Now you're coming in contact with an officer that's been on for 15 hours. Who knows what they've been dealing with? They're going to have a lot less patience. And then that trickles down to the public as far as how capable I am of doing my job after a 15 hour day. Um, so, so it's, it, it's huge. The, the morale and everything in the department and a lot of departments are working on a lot of departments are working on different, uh, alternate work weeks. Um, starting to get more people hired up and things like that, but it's going to be a long time before that really takes effect before that really is, is portrayed. You know, my, my department's trying to hire a ton of people right now, but they have a six month Academy, then three months of, of field training office, uh, being going through field training. And then they're finally able to hit the road and, and, and take up a spot. Um, so it's, it, it's a difficult road. Um, I try to tell all, all my friends in law enforcement and everybody that I work with, just, just keep plugging away, do the best that you can. Um, and remember why you came on this job, help the people around you and continue to work. And, um, you know, it, the biggest thing is just to be there for each other when when we're working. Uh, if, if you know that that a partner has worked a 15 hour day and he has a call uh, and you, you you've been on for eight and maybe you've only taken one or two calls, go go step up, you know, be a teammate, step up, take care of them, take care of their work if they need to. If they, they're down three or four crashes and you only have one step up and take a crash for them. It's not that big of a deal. But um. Those are the those are the the areas and the groups and the departments that I think will come out of this um, successfully. I think the departments that everybody's out for their for their self and and trying to focus on what what their next goal is and that that doesn't help anybody. So I want to hit one more area before we go to some closing questions. Um, we haven't okay. touched on it yet. Mental health in your agency specifically, you have the unspoken element of mental health which is what happened to us in the formative years before we ever put the uniform on you have the things that we see and do now you have you know the organizational stress of understaffing of being you know lauded by the media for example what are you seeing through your eyes when it comes to mental health in your profession specifically uh overwork uh, just people being overworked and and not being given the tools to build the resiliency that they need to to be uh, be able to overcome the, the challenges that they see and the things that we see day in and day out. Like you said, I I have like I said before, I have my anchor. I know I know where I am. I'm able to compartmentalize things pretty well and and get past them. And then every once in a while, something pops up that I have to deal with stuff. So, but I have my my support group that I can go to. So I see it. I. Tr- I think that there that departments can do a much better job. There's so many resources out there nowadays, but the resources that we see officers don't really want to utilize unless it's another officer. You know, they, it, I see it in, in in support groups and things like that, and like with, there's there's psychiatrists and people out there that that will talk to law enforcement. But unless you've actually done the job, and I'll talk about this in kind of the tactical fitness realm too. Uh, there's trainers out there and there's people in the tactical fitness realm or in the, the psychology realm and all that stuff that want to help. And I, I appreciate it. 
put yourself in our shoes, come out and do our job for a little while. And then we'll be more willing to open our minds and open our hearts to you. I think that in the mental health realm, there needs to be more professionals out there that have done the job and there needs to be more people willing to reach out. I I'd reach out. If I see a guy who's, who's usually always comes to coffee and is usually always hanging out with us. And then he's, he's maybe his activity is not as good or things like that. I'll reach out to him and be like, Hey man, what's going on? Let's talk. Let's have it out. Let's figure out what's going on. So we can, so we can fix things and, and hopefully help you help you move on. But I think that in our realm, we're so macho, right? We try to be so macho and try to just handle everything on our own. Um, so if you are in law enforcement or if you are in, in any first responder and you're having trouble, reach out to the guys that you know that that you're friends with. And if you're one of those guys who who is locked on and you feel like you have your your stuff together and you can help out, reach out to those that that you think might be hurting because I've seen it. I've had multiple officers close to me in my career commit suicide. I've, I've seen it. And going back and looking at it, a lot of times there aren't warning signs, but there's always something that you can do. If you have, even, even if you're not doing well, reach out to your brothers and sisters and help them with any situation that they might be going through. Even if it's just to shoot them a text on a Friday night, before you go out, get off shift or, or when they're coming on shift to be like, Hey man, I was thinking about you today and let them know that you're there for them. And I think that's the way that we can really help with this whole mental health crisis that we see in our profession nowadays is to just be the brothers and sisters that, that we say that we are, we talk about the thin blue line or the thin red line and all, all of our camaraderie and everything that we go through. But when it really comes down to it, are you having the tough conversations? Are you reaching out to, to the people that you know just dealt with a, a, a fatal scene where there was a kid who died? Like, are you calling that person and telling them, hey, man, are you okay? Right? Are we doing those things to help them overcome the, the stuff that they see day in and day out? Well, you talked about masculinity, too. That's something that comes up a lot. I, I wish we could just reframe <clears throat> Excuse me, the way that you and I were raised which was, you know, the the tough guy, the man was this stoic, you know, bodybuilder basically. It was pretty much what we were given as 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 heroes, as men in but actually look at, for example, Dick Winters in the Band of Brothers series, the real man who's in tears recalling some of the heroism and some of the losses. Like that, it takes courage to be vulnerable. So yeah. it's to be, you know, blunt. It's it's cowardice to not reach out. It's courage to reach out. And I think once we frame that, like it's okay. It's you're being brave when you're asking for help. Do the the brave yeah. thing. Brave is not burying it down and thinking that you're weak and everyone else is fine. A that's a facade, and B that's a one way ticket to you know to a casket. Asking for help is the most courageous thing. Vulnerability is the most courageous thing a man or a woman can express. And you, you, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It, it made me think about this. I actually haven't shared this with anybody yet. Um, it's something that I've kind of been working on. Um, I just write notes and stuff in my phone every once in a while, but I wrote, I've, I've been working on this. It's called what is a man? And I want to share it with you. I haven't, again, this is the first time I've actually shared this. So we'll see if I can get through it without, uh, without any emotion, 
we'll see. Um, but again, this isn't just what is a man. This is what is anything, a brother or sister. It says a man is a shoulder soft enough, is a shoulder soft enough to cry on, but strong enough to bear others' burdens. A mind that is clear can react to danger and solve the problems of the world. The heart of a lion that is soft enough to calm the fears and wipe the tears of little children. A man does not shy away from a fight, but does not seek them out. A friend that you might not hear from for years, but will be there for you at the moment at a moment's notice. A man is a servant who lifts others up by the example he sets. Beautiful. The yin and the yang. That's something I've talked about a lot recently. You know, the what they say, walk stuffy but carry a big stick. You know, the warrior yeah. poet. I mean, there's so many expressions and yet we've ignored them for a long time. Like that strength is the potential to do something, not walking around punching drywall, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I want to get to the closing questions. One more area that I do want to just expand on a bit. Um, Fieldcraft survival. So how did you end up meeting Mike and the team? And then, um, you know, what is the, what are the, the training opportunities that people can take part in when they're listening? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with Fieldcraft Survival, I can my my whole life has kind of just been being in the right place at the right time. So with with that, um, uh, Mike came out to our academy and and taught a class at the the academy, and so I I hit it off with him pretty well. Uh, went to lunch with him, and then uh, there was a couple classes that that were going to going to be taught in uh, in California the next weekend. So I asked, hey. I'm I'm traveling down to LA. I'm going to be in that area. Do you mind if I if I show up to a couple of those classes? And he invited me to come out. He didn't actually teach them, but lo and behold, I showed up. And his director of training at the time, uh, Raul Martinez, was teaching the classes. So I went to went to the first class on Saturday. Uh, it was a carbine class, and then um, went out to lunch with Raul, and again hit it off. And he asked if I ever had any interest in, in instructing. And, and I said, that's basically my goal. Like that's what I, that's what I do with my life. I had been an academy instructor for a little while at that time. Um, and so I went to the second class and he, he said, well, reach out to me if you're ever interested in instructing and we'll, uh, we'll get the ball rolling. So I then reached out to him immediately, um, and started traveling around with him and some of the other instructors and being an associate instructor on my own dime, um, showing up to the classes and jumping in for certain blocks of instruction and taught in San Diego back up in, in series in a couple different areas for about six months. And then had the opportunity, um, once he felt like I was ready to, to actually instruct my own class. So he brought me on as a contractor at that point. And that was about three years ago. So I've been teaching with field crafts revival for about three years now, all through, through the whole COVID, uh, era and everything. And, I've, I've had the opportunity to teach in, in Colorado with some of the other instructors, uh, Washington, Arizona, um, pretty much all over, all over the West coast is usually where I teach. There's, there's about eight of us that teach all over the, the, the country and Fieldcraft is such an amazing company because it teaches everything. It teaches everything from survival to overlanding to firearms training to medical training and every there's a, there's something for every walk of life that that's interested in getting into it um i teach uh, pistol and, and carbine um i also have a background in some of the other uh, survival stuff and things i haven't really taught yet but um pistol and carbine classes are are what i teach uh, most of the time and and i love it i again i teach on weekends the classes are usually uh, saturdays and sundays 
Uh, we have everything from basic pistol and basic carving to for people who have never shot a pistol or a carbine before all the way to our performance pistol and carbine so you can be running and gunning and one of the things that's is great about it is that most people go to a flat range and they don't have the opportunity to draw from a holster they have to shoot from a bench and things like that or we're out on on these ranges where we're able to draw move and shoot and do everything that you could do in, in a real life situation living in a 360 degree world and um it's it's great training i love it um I, I hope to be able to continue to do it for a long time because it's it's more fun than than, I, than I'm able to have pretty much anywhere else. So I love it. Beautiful. I actually had Raul on the show. He's got he's got his own company, hasn't he? Have I got that yes. right. Yeah. Yeah. Rogue Methods. Rogue yeah. Methods. Yeah. Beautiful. So this is the thing. I mean, there's so many. You know, we've got um, some here locally. We've got you know all over the place. Pat McNamara up in North Carolina. I mean, everyone yeah. has these groups in their states, and you guys are constantly offering. You know, these weekends all the way, like you said, from just basic pistol through to, you know, kill houses and everything in between. Yeah, it's great stuff. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, one, one of the, I, I love the, the Stoics and I love reading through a lot of that, that stuff. But I think 48 Laws of Power from Robert Greene is probably one of my, one of my favorite books. Again, it's, it's a heavy read. There's a lot to it. Um, but if you kind of just whittle through it, uh, Robert Greene has put out a lot of stuff, mastery and different things like that. But, uh, that 48 laws of power book is, is pretty good. It has a lot of, of good information and a lot of philosophy in there and just how to be a person, how to utilize your power for good. Beautiful. What about a movie and or a documentary? Uh, movie. I love movies, man. Um, I always, there was, you know, teaching at the Academy, I always taught my, uh, my cadets that there was two movies that they had to do. They had to watch this one's kind of a documentary and, um, it's, it's now has 10 parts. It's a 10 part series about family freedom and, and fast cars called fast and the furious. Right. So those, that's a series that, that I love to always recommend. Um, but what I would always tell my, my cadets to watch is a uh, roadhouse. Um, you know, if you, if you can watch Roadhouse and see how he handles himself, um, to the point where you have to be nice, you know, as an officer, we always have to be nice until it's time to not be nice. And then if you need to, you need to be able to rip dudes throw it out. So, um, that's, that's basically the epitome of being a police officer is always be nice until you get to that point where it's not time to be nice anymore. So Roadhouse was, is, has always been one of my, one of my favorite movies for that. Beautiful. Yeah, that was a great film. I think Patrick Swayze, I forget what anniversary of his death it just was, but I saw, I don't know why it popped up on my feed, but his wife just posted it was something like oh, yeah. 20 years or something. I don't know if I got that right, but a long, long time since he's been gone. But yeah. I mean, that was, uh, yeah, he was he was uh, amazing in that. And then, like you said, again, it was that warrior poet. He wasn't Rambo. Yeah. You know, he was this guy that try to be as, as uh, diplomatic as possible, which I would say, you know, we need more of that in everyday life, including wars these days, you know. Absolutely. I mean, if we're going to send yeah. our officers in with a gun or our soldiers in with a gun, we need to make sure it's justified. Yeah, absolutely. So next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, um, I don't know if you've had him ever had him on, but John Wellborn, um from power athlete he had he played 10 years in the nfl 
Um, and then he started uh, CrossFit football and has done power athlete. He's done a lot of work with, um, with special forces and with the, the military and stuff training. He's actually uh, helped create training programs for guys like Andy Stump and things like he's been on Andy Stump's podcast a couple of times, but he is a wealth of knowledge of what it means to be strong and capable. And, and he's, I think he would be, be great to kind of paint a picture of why you need to be able to be capable in, in our profession. So yeah, I can I can give you his info. Please, that'd be amazing. He's been on my radar for a long time. I think even Barbell Shrug, the original crew, I think he was on there before I even started my podcast. So so yeah, long, long time. Beautiful. All right. Well then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and Fieldcraft. What do you do to decompress? Family. Um I we plan and we do we do more than one, but we uh, so uh, ever since my kids were young, I always wanted to take them on, on some pretty cool trips. So that's my biggest thing every year is we do a week long trip. Um, instead of all the presents and everything for Christmas, I've always given my kids, um, a trip. So if they, they, they know at the end of Christmas, they open a couple of their presents and things, and then they open a jigsaw puzzle of the place that we're going to be going that year. So we've gone everywhere from the grand Canyon to Yellowstone with four kids. It was mostly driving, driving distance areas. Right. So, um, we've been pretty much everywhere on the West coast. The, the, one of the biggest trips we took them to was, was Hawaii. We flew them out to the all out to Hawaii before my daughter, my oldest daughter left home. But, um, that's been my biggest thing is just looking forward every year to that trip with my family where we can decompress and kind of just, not worry about anything else that's going on just be together and, and have that anchor you know with with uh with them that's that's my that's that's my grounding that's what grounds me it's amazing as as a, a dad now my bonus boy is 22 and my my youngest is about to be 16 and we've traveled a lot especially you know my, my youngest because uh you know i met my my bonus boy almost 11 years ago now um but they do remember some of the things they got but they definitely remember all the trips that we went to all the countries that we got to visit because with an international dad you know they get to go to see some pretty cool places but yeah i mean i would say that was such a great idea for for people that are struggling don't buy the latest thing save your money exactly. and like you said whether it's driving distance whether it's a cruise we're very lucky in florida here that was one year we did um and it's you know for the same amount of money it would have cost for presents for two of them we basically got right. a, you know a cabin that they shared and they got a week on a cruise ship you know and everything was yeah, cooked awesome. and everything was cleaned and you know as parents it's pretty kick-ass too so so yeah i couldn't yeah. agree more yeah for sure all right. Well, then, people listening, where are the best places to find Fieldcraft and all the courses that you offer, and then yourself personally on social media? Yeah. So Fieldcraft is, uh, I mean, it's Fieldcraft.com is is their website. They have the Fieldcraft HQ uh, online is is um, for uh, Instagram is their site. They're pretty active on there. So anytime you want to hit them up and then a lot of us instructors are pretty active on there, but go to their, go to their website and you'll find anything from, from merchandise, from survival merchandise, all the way down to any of the, the classes that we teach. And then for me personally, Instagram is probably the best for me. It's uh, Tyson.Shumway at uh, um, just on, on Instagram. So at Tyson.Shumway. Um, and again, it's it's a it's a public site. So any questions that you have, you'll see a lot of a lot of videos of me trying to to be strong on there, and other videos of me running and gunning and stuff, and some family stuff. But 
It's just me. I just, I always tell my wife, I'm just, I'm just a normal dude um, out here trying to influence what I can in my small sphere of influence. And if I'm able to help a couple people along the way, then, then, then great. I love, I love what I do. I do what I do because I love it. Beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you to Derek again for connecting us, but also for yourself. I mean, when you just have, as you said, regular members of first responder professions that are out there trying to move the needle, whether it's their own, you know, the fitness of their department, the training levels, the the combatives, the the work weeks, you know, the mental health side, um, these are the voices that we need to hear. And every single person's perspective and the state they're in and the cities they worked in creates this amazing kind of, you know, collage of how we're doing as a as a as a profession and how the nation is doing as well. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing your writing for the first time on the podcast it's been great i really appreciate um the the opportunity to be here and and again um hope that hope that my small message can help some others